thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. afternoon depending on what time it is where you are we are back to chapter 52 we're going to pick it up in the second half of chapter 52 the anglo-saxon guilds in process of time the craft guilds without losing altogether their religious features which have been preserved to this day in the institution of speculative freemasonry which is descended from them began to enlarge the number of their ordinances for the regulation of work and workmen as it will be necessary to give directly a specimen of the old constitutions of the English medieval Freemasons, which were nothing more nor less than ordinances of Masonic craft guilds, it will be proper, at the expense of a little repeating and summing, to glance at the progress of these craft guilds. Some of the facts will refer equally to the craft guilds of the continent, but only incidentally, as that topic will be treated hereafter as an independent topic. For the present, our attention must be directed exclusively to the rise and growth of the English guilds of craftsmen. We have already seen that in the 11th century, and even before, the inhabitants of a town were divided by the officers who governed the municipality into freemen and bondsmen. To this last class belonged the handicraftsmen who were subjected to the payment of certain taxes and the performance of certain feudal services or such return in a military way as was required of them because of land held on that condition. But there was also a class of free handicraftsmen who were not, as respects the carrying on of their business, subjected to the same slavish indignities as the bondsmen. As the law made the distinction between the bond and free craftsmen, there was no necessity for the latter to enter into any association for the protection of their rights and privileges. They already formed a part of the governing and lawmaking power of the municipality and were thus able to protect themselves. But by a course of revolutions, which it is unnecessary to detail, the free handicraftsmen lost their place in the general guild of the citizens. The burghers, freemen of the incorporated towns, then began to feel a desire to subject them to the same imposts or taxes as were paid by the bond craftsmen. These burghers, anxious for the prosperity of their towns, allowed foreigners on the payment of a fee to carry on their trade, which of course greatly affected the interests of the free craftsmen by introducing competition. This cause naturally brought about the necessity of association for that mutual protection of interest, which could not have been effected if the craftsmen continued in an isolated state. From this there arose the formation of craft guilds, which took the suggestion of their form from the older guilds which had preceded them. Most of these were, however, of a social or religious character. The craft guilds thus founded to restrain the attacks of the burghers on their rights consisted at first, both in England and on the continent, in France and in Germany especially, of the most eminent of the craftsmen who were free, freedom being an absolutely necessary qualification for admission into the fraternity. After the bond craftsmen were, by the liberal and humanizing progress of the age, freed from their bondage or servitude, many of them, leaving the companies into which they had been distributed during their slavery by their masters, 
became members of the guilds of free craftsmen. Thus, the handicrafts were divided into those who had always been free and those who had originally been bondsmen. The only way in which the hitherto bond craftsmen could mingle on equal terms with the free craftsmen was by obtaining admission into and becoming, as it is called, free of the guild. This was a high privilege and not easily conceded or obtained. The free craftsmen always held aloof from the craftsmen who were not free, the word free not being used as the opposite of bondsmen, but only to mean one who was not a freeman of the guild and who worked outside of its regulations. We find that this allusion to freemen of the guild is constantly used in the old charters. Such expressions as free carpenters, free weavers, free tailors are not, it is true, to be found on record, though it is not unlikely that they were in conversational use. But in the charter of the Guild of Tailors of Exeter, granted by Edward IV, and the original of which is in the archives of the Corporation of Exeter, whence it was copied by Toulman Smith, is the following heading of one of the sections of the ordinances the other of the free brothers, that is, the oath of the free brothers. Free brother was a recognized expression in the early period of the organization of craft guilds, to mean one who is a freeman of the guild. The workers in stone appear to have preserved the use of the term with great care, and used the term freemason to distinguish those who were free of the guild from those rough layers or cowans who had not been admitted to the privileges of the fraternity and with whom they were forbidden to work. In every Masonic constitution that has been preserved is the ordinance that no Mason shall make any mold, square, or rules to any rough layer. The Freemason could not, by the laws of the Guild, engage in labor with one who was not free. We thus trace the source of the word Freemason, used now exclusively to indicate the member of a lodge of speculative Freemasons, but originally to denote a stonecutter who was free of his guilt. We think this explanation much better than that which traces the origin of the term to the French frère mécon, or brother mason. Such a derivation would necessarily assign the birth of the English Masonic guilds to a French parentage, a theory not only wholly unsupported by historical authority, but actually in contradiction to it. Indeed, the French themselves have rejected the idea, for they call a Freemason not frère mécon, or brother mason, but a franc mécon, franc being the old French for free. At first, the craft guilds were voluntary associations acting jointly by general free will and accord among the members. They could enforce their regulations only by the common consent of the members, but as in time some of these, unwilling to submit to the restrictions laid upon them, would withdraw and carry on their trade independently, it was found necessary to obtain the authority from the law of the land to punish such contempt and to protect the interests of the guilds. This was effected by an approval of the guild ordinances by the Lord, the citizens, or afterward by the King. In this way arose the charters under which, after the time of Henry I, all the craft guilds acted and continued to act to this present day. This process did not, however, entirely cure the evil, and in the twelfth century artisans of several trades and mysteries in London, being unwilling to unite with the incorporated guilds or being unable to obtain admission into them, erected themselves into fraternities without the necessary powers of incorporation. These were not recognized by the companies of freemen and were condemned by the king for their unruly proceedings. They were nicknamed the adulterine guilds, and they remind us of the collegia illicita, or unlawful colleges, among the Romans, as well as the use of the term clandestine lodges among the modern speculative freemasons. The number of these adulterine guilds in the year 1180 was, according to Maddox in his History of the Exchequer, 
14, but no guild of stonecutters is mentioned in the list. Before going on to a comparison of the statutes, ordinances, or regulations of these early guilds with the Masonic constitutions contained in the old records of the order, it will be proper to survey and sum up briefly the condition and character of these Saxon and Norman craft guilds. We have said on a former occasion, and here repeat the assertion, that an investigation of the usages of the medieval guilds and a comparison of their regulations with the old Masonic constitutions will furnish a fertile source of interest to the student of the remains left to us from the early craftsmen, and will throw much light on the ancient history of Freemasonry. The custom of meeting on certain stated occasions was one of the most important of the guild regulations. These meetings of the whole body of the guild were sometimes monthly, but more generally they were held quarterly. At these meetings all matters concerning the common interests of the guild were discussed, and the meetings were conducted with certain ceremonies, so as to give solemnity to the occasion. The guild chest, which was safely fastened by several locks, was opened, and the charter, ordinances, and other valuable articles contained in it were exposed to view, on which occasion all the members uncovered their heads in token of reverence. The guild elected its own officers. This was a right peculiar to the English guilds. On the continent, the presiding officer was frequently appointed by the municipal or other outside authorities. Of course, it is well to point out here that the charter recognition of the guild by the authorities could also easily include an oversight of the officers by the town government. Such control is shown by the old oath given in that compilation, dated 1419, of the laws of the City of London found in the Liber Albus, or White Book, page 451, and which is of great age. Here it is. Oath of the Masters and Wardens of the Mysteries you shall swear that well and lawfully you shall overlook the art or mystery of which you are masters, or wardens, for the year elected, and the good rules and ordinances of the same mystery, approved here by the court, you shall keep and cause to be kept, and all the defaults that you shall find therein, done contrary thereto, you shall present to the chamberlain of the city from time to time, sparing no one for favor, and aggrieving no one for hate. Extortion or wrong unto no one, by color of your office you shall do, nor unto anything that shall be against the estate and peace of the king or of the city you shall consent. But for the time that you shall be in office, in all things pertaining unto the said mystery, according to the good laws and franchises of the said city, well and lawfully you shall behave yourself, so God you help and the saints. In the early Saxon guilds, and for some time after the conquest, the presiding officer was called the alderman. At a later period, we find him named as the Graceman, again as the Early Father, and sometimes by other titles. At last, it became the uniform practice to call the chief officers of the guild the Masters and Wardens, a usage which has continued ever since to prevail, and which was adopted by the speculative Freemasons. The craft guilds not only directed themselves to the welfare of their worldly concerns, such as the regulation of their trade, which was called a mystery, but also took charge of spiritual matters, and for that purpose employed a priest or chaplain who conducted their religious services and offered up masses or prayers for the dead. In this connection, each guild appears to have had a patron saint, and members of the Brotherhood were often connected with a particular church, where, on appointed occasions, they performed special services and received in return a part in the advantages of all the prayers of the congregation. Thus they resembled the Roman colleges of artificers, which it will be remembered were often connected with a particular temple, and the college was dedicated to the god worshipped therein. Almsgiving was also practiced by the guild, 
and while there was a general distribution of food and money to the poor without respect to persons among the poor, special attention was paid to the wants of their own needy members, their widows and orphans. To support the current expenses of the guild, an entrance fee was demanded from every one on his admission, and all the members contributed monthly or quarterly a certain sum to the general fund. The guild officers dealt out justice among its members and inflicted punishments for offenses committed against the statutes of the guild. These punishments consisted of money fines or of being suspended or even expelled, commonly called excommunication. They discouraged suits at law between the members and endeavored to settle all disputes, if possible, by arbitration. Finally, there was an annual festival on the day of the patron saint of the guild, when the members assembled for religious worship, almsgiving, and feasting. It was deemed an offense for anyone to be absent from this general assembly without a very good excuse. There was also a ceremony of admission and an oath administered to the candidate on his reception, as these will be of great importance in a comparison of the usages of the Saxon guilds with the Masonic sodalities, we copy the following form of admission and oath from the charter of St. Catherine's Guild at Stamford. The date of this charter is 1494, but Toulmin Smith observes that there is an internal evidence showing that the guild was established at a much earlier period. Admission of Brothers and Sisters in the Guild of St. Catherine then it is ordained that when the said first even song is done, the alderman and his brethren shall assemble in their hall and drink, and there have a courteous communication for the wheel of the said guild. And then shall be called forth, and all those that shall be admitted, brethren or sisters of the guild, and the alderman shall examine them in this wise. Sir or sis, be ye willing to be brethren among us in this guild, and will desire and ask it in the worship of Almighty God, our blessed Saint Mary, and the Holy Virgin and the Martyr St. Catherine, in whose name this guild is founded and in the way of charity. And by their own will they shall answer yea or nay. Then the alderman shall command the clerk to give this oath to them in form and following manner. This hear you, alderman. I shall true man be to God Almighty, to Our Lady St. Mary, and to that Holy Virgin and Martyr St. Catherine, in whose honor and worship this guild is founded and shall be obedient to the alderman of this guild and to his successors, and come to him and his brethren when I have warning, and not absent myself without cause reasonable. I shall be ready at Scott and Lot, and all my duties truly pay and do. The ordinances, constitutions, and rules, what with the counsel of the same guild, keep, obey, and perform, and to my power maintain to my life's end. So help me God, and Halidome, and by this book, and then kiss the book and be lovingly received with all the brethren, and then they drink about it, and after that depart for that night. Such is a brief sketch of the principal characteristics of the early guild. The main object of presenting it has been to enable the reader to compare these regulations with those of the old Masonic constitutions of the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, so as to show the growth and development of the Masonic law from them. It will, for the sake of convenient reference, be therefore necessary to select from these old Masonic constitutions, one at least, and one of the earliest, that the reader may, in making his comparison, have the regulations of the Guild and the charges of the Freemasons side by side before him. But this investigation will perhaps be better continued in a separate and following chapter. And that ends chapter 52. So we'll pick up again with chapter 53 at some point in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. 
We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and Lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.